Hey church, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders and this week has been crazy. This has been a week that perhaps many of us dreaded for a long time or maybe many of us hoped uh, in for a long time. And nevertheless, I think it's important to acknowledge that in our church family, there are a myriad of emotions, there are a myriad of opinions and perspectives, experiences. So for some of us, there is a kind of sorrow and a heaviness, a fear, if you will, at the conclusion of an election. Um, for others, at that exact same conclusion, there is elation, there's relief, there's joy. There's a kind of experience of feeling and being seen and heard in a way that perhaps you haven't experienced in a long time. And it's important for us to acknowledge that, not, not just in our church family, but as I heard Pastor Rich Velotas explain, he's a pastor out in Brooklyn just this week, that every election cycle, there are those who are grieved and there's those who are relieved. Those who are grieved and those who are relieved. And that's the case because as we looked at last week is that every political candidate, every one that we could elect into an earthly and human position of authority will leave out certain people. Every administration in our country leaves out certain people. And therefore every election cycle, there, there is this need for us as a church to reaffirm who we are, to, to understand what it means to be the people of God, though we may be citizens of the United States. Because ultimately, we are a people and a part of a story, if you will, that has existed into eternity past in, in God himself, of, about what that means for us, that concept um, and, the, and that, that plan and the fullness of time that God would bring about creation, his people, and ultimately send his son to be the founder and head of the local church. And after this country passes away, our identity as the church will, will persist. And so it behooves us in the middle of all of these emotions and experiences of elation or sorrow, of fear or hope, is, is to go to God and ask for his help to clarify our identity the identity that was true before the United States existed and will be true on into eternity long after the United States ceases to exist. And so you may be grieved, you may be relieved, and yet we together are the people of God. And so what we're going to do is not go over every uh, political idea or governmental agenda or even every charter of what we carry as the local church, that we have as the local church. We're going to do is go to God with all of that emotion, go to God with all of that experience, go to God and acknowledge that, that we are all uh, a part of the family of God. We're a part of the people of God. And, and therefore, we're going to go to God. We're going to go to his word. And, and certainly this has been heavy on my mind and my heart and thinking about all of the different people who are a part of our church and what it means for us to seek shalom, the shalom and well-being of our city and, and well-being of our country, as well as to understand what it means to be the people of God. And so I've been asking for the Lord's help. I've been asking for insight into his word. I've been asking and praying uh, for your good and for your care, regardless of where you fall in the emotion and experience of this past week or your aspiration or what you're thinking about the future. And so it's a joy, I think a joy that we should all participate in, in being able to be grounded in God's word in a moment like this, regardless of what our experience 
uh, is. And so let's do that. Let's ask for God's help. And then we're going to open up Romans uh, chapter 3 in a moment. So Heavenly Father, speak to us. We're a people who need to hear from you. In our grief and our relief, speak to us. Help us to know what it means to be yours. Help us to know what it means to be brothers and sisters. Help us to celebrate. Help us to be sorrowful. Help us to be the people that hold those things ever in tension in this age. So God, use me, speak in and through me for your good, or for rather for your glory and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Elijah was a prophet of God. He was a prophet of God who served the Lord uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel. And during the time that he served as a prophet, the, the, this northern kingdom of Israel experienced incredible economic growth and stability, um, in particular through um, partnering with allies or making allies in surrounding countries. And, and one of those allies was the Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians became such strong allies that the king of this northern kingdom of Israel arranged a marriage between his son and the son of the Phoenician king. Her, her name was Jezebel, and, and his son was, was Ahab. And Ahab and Je- Jezebel come together, and they sort of take over the monarchy. And when Jezebel and Ahab are married, Jezebel brings with her her understanding, her religion, her faith, which is Baal, with this false prophet, this false religion of Baal, with its prophets, its practices, its sort of perspective, if you will. And in 1 Kings 18, God sends Elijah to Ahab to speak with him, who is now the king, to speak with him about the the ending of a drought, but as we'll read, it is about so much more than that. In particular, it becomes about confronting the powers of Baal. So 1 Kings chapter 18, we'll begin there. We'll get to Romans chapter 3 in a moment. 1 Kings 18 verse 20 said, so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered uh, the prophets together at Mount Carmel and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So they're quiet. Elijah answers a really, or asks rather a really important Question: Because the people of God are divided into these two kingdoms, the northern and the southern, and yet their allegiance within the northern kingdom is also divided. This is what Elijah comes and speaks to him about. Are, are you feeling a little bit of perhaps where we are going today in God's word, seeing the division in God's people, a division even in the northern kingdom, as well as we see an incredible division in our country Today And so Elijah comes and doesn't just sort of sing a song and say, let's all get along. He, he says, you need to choose. Do you follow God or do you follow the powers? Do you follow the powers of this day? See, division and idolatry is rampant in the hearts and minds of God's people. This was particularly true in the governmental powers and leaders of that day. But it had gripped the, the people as a whole. And so in order to confront this demonic sickness that the people of God 
within the Northern Kingdom were experiencing, a demonstration was organized between Baal and Yahweh. The prophets of Baal uh, would, would come together, if you will, to face God, to face Yahweh, and see who ultimately would be revealed to be the one who was true, who was truly God. And, and the way that they set this up is that they, they put an altar together, they put a sacrifice on top of it, and the prophets of Baal went first, and they went round and round through the day to try to get the attention of Baal. But as it says at the end of 1 Kings 18, 29, that there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. And I think important historical footnote, Elijah mocks them a little bit, asks if uh, perhaps their God has gone to the bathroom and is otherwise deposed, and so he cannot actually show up. See, Elijah then steps into the gap where Baal did not show up, and he calls out to God. In 1 Kings 18, verse 37, uh, Elijah says this. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And in, in that moment, the, the, this fire comes down from heaven, the Lord fell upon the sacrifice and the altar, laps up even the water that was around there, and the prophets of Baal uh, ultimately are completely showed to be worthless in their ability to conjure up some sort of moment. Here, Baal is, is revealed to be completely impotent in a false power, in a demonic power, in a, an idolatrous religion, and, and ultimately... God demonstrates his great power, his great worth to all the people. The prophets of Baal are actually killed and the people marvel at Yahweh and they, they worship him. See, every political cycle, the church has an opportunity to consider the nature and hearts and the state, if you will, of our worship. How is it that we are experiencing? How is it that we are walking through these moments? Do you serve the Lord? Do you, are you with the Lord? Do you follow him? Do you obey him? Or do you obey the powers? Do you trust in the powers? See, every political cycle, we have an opportunity to excavate or allow really God's spirit to excavate our hearts and reveal this truth in us, reveal the reality, the state of our hearts. And like the nation of Israel in the time of Elijah, our nation seems to be just as divided as ever before. In my mind and in the counsel of God's word, our division, though, has little to do with our political affiliation and much more to do with our worship. You see, when we are committed to a narrative of national innocence and democratic superiority, we too worship a modern day Baal, the powers of this world. And we need to hear again the words of Elijah. If, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. If the powers of this world, then follow them. Choose this day who you'll serve. Jesus would say years later in Matthew 6 that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot follow God. You cannot love God. You cannot worship God and the powers of this world. See, moments after the greatest display, one of the greatest displays of this divine power that Elijah sees called down from heaven, Jezebel gets mad. She gets incredibly irritated. What's, what's interesting is that Ahab sort of takes the L. 
He takes the L and he moves on and he's like, wow, that was incredible. Maybe we should consider Yahweh. Jezebel, not so much. She's really upset. She gets really mad and she vows to kill Elijah, just like those prophets of Baal. She essentially says, if he's not like one of them in 24 hours, then so help me. So she makes this vow. And here's how Elijah responds. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 3 and 4. Jezebel now has made a claim that she's going to take his life in the middle of all of this. And verse 3 says, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. After an incredible victory against the powers of the day, Elijah feared the power of the day. After he had just seen God do this incredible and mighty work for his people to demonstrate his power to his people so that his people would be his people. They would, they would identify with him. They would follow him. They would, <clears throat> they would worship him. So they would see his power. And yet after Elijah is used by God to do that work, he too is afraid. He is afraid of the powers. He no longer feared God. He feared the powers. And when we misplace our fear, we do not fear God, but we fear man. We fear these powers. We cower before the powers of this world. We will run away too. Today, we're continuing our study in Paul's letter, Romans chapter 3. He's writing to Roman Christians in the first century. He's writing to them in such a way as we have seen to sort of reveal their own fears Last week, we had to face them. Last week, we had to look at our our own fears in in the middle of a lot of uncertainty. And it seems like each passing day, though we persist with questions, there's clarity about what the next few years may look like for us as a country. And nevertheless, we have to face our fears because regardless of what takes place in our country, God is very concerned about what takes place in our hearts, that he might bring bring good to our neighbors and the least and the last and the lost, that the kingdom would flourish and thrive right here among us, that we would seek seek the shalom of our our city, the goodness and well-being. Because as Jeremiah wrote, that in their welfare, in their peace, we will find our own. And so this is not lost on us. But in this moment, we've had to face our fears and realize that we have feared a virus or the loss of our freedoms. We feared the implications of of certain different um, presidential administrations and the implications of those more than we have feared God. We had to look at those. We had to repent of those. We had to confess those. And we perhaps we still need to. See, remember, what our fears reveal is a lack of righteous fear. Righteous fear that is only and sufficiently and and rightly placed in God. We fear other things because we do not fear God rightly. And what we'll see today is that this fear, this righteous fear will lead to a holy silence. Think about that. That this righteous fear will lead us to a holy silence. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Meet me there, please. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the Gospels, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and you, uh, rather, excuse me, you hit Acts and then Romans. If you get to 1st and 2nd Corinthians, go back to the left. We'll be Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in the first century, Jews and Gentiles. He says, now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Under the law, Paul says, every mouth is stopped. Fear, in other words, leads to silence. This is what we read about in verse 18, that the fear of God was not in these people who continually ask questions about how they might get out of judgment. So fear, righteous fear leads to silence because silence is what happens to us when we move from the theoretical, the theoretical knowledge of God to his presence. When we move from ideas of who God is to relationship and fellowship with him, we move from fear, this this holy and righteous fear of him to a silence before him. From ideas of God to intimacy with God. That's how 20, 20th century preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones explained it when he was reflecting upon Job and the life of Job in Job 42.5. Job said, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Now my eye sees you. Job was moving from the theoretical into the experiential, in, from ideas of God to his very presence and fellowship and intimacy with him. See, eventually Job would put his hand over his mouth. And Lloyd-Jones says this, Job had been speaking foolishly and thoughtlessly. He had had a theoretical knowledge of God, but now he was in the presence of God and he stopped his own mouth. As I mentioned, this week, people are grieved and they are relieved. Some in our church today, you, my sister, my brother, may be feeling grief. Others of you may be feeling incredible relief, sorrow, and celebration. It's what we as a people collectively are constantly going through. In each case, we need to move from the theoretical into the present, into the presence of God, rather. We need our fear of God to lead us into a holy silence, meaning that if you know God meets you, and and comforts you in your grief, then you ought to be longing for a God who is present with you in the middle of your grief, that he actually does bring comfort. And if you know God is is a God who keeps you from pride, if he alone is the one that that brings about his good and pleasing and perfect will in your life, if you are, are celebrating and relieved, then it's to him you look. It's to God you look, not into self righteousness but ultimately in gratitude and thanksgiving to him that you long to move from the theoretical into the actual, into his presence, which is where his glory reigns, not yours and not mine. See, this is what Elijah discovered. There is something about the silence. There is something about quieting our souls before God in the middle of grief, in the middle of relief, quieting our souls before God. It's ripe for his care. The silence, this spiritual silence is ripe for the care of God. See, Elijah was so scared and fearful and depressed that after a day of running for his life, he found a tree and asked God to take his life. 
He was overwhelmed. He was depressed. He was forlorn. He was dejected. He was terrified about the prospect of the future. And in God's great wisdom and grace, God invites Elijah into a kind of silence by not responding, but just allowing Elijah to fall asleep. Let's think about that. God is so kind. God's so gracious. God is such a genius that he knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly what I need. He is such a tender and loving and and, an intimate father that he knows what you, his daughter, you, his son, need. Think about that. Receive that. Don't tell me you've heard that before. Do you believe it? Do you believe that God truly knows what you need and he is ready, willing, and able to give it to you? See, Elijah wanted his life to be taken and, and the Lord leads him to this tree and he leans against it and he falls asleep. And we'll pick up the story back in 1 Kings 19 verse 5. After Elijah has has taken this nap and see how the Lord takes care of him in the middle of all of this. Elijah, or rather uh, 1 Kings 19 verse 5. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. So in his fear, in his weariness and his sorrow, God sends a messenger to his beloved son. Elijah does not receive a word or instruction or even correction from God right away. He receives a nap. He he not only receives a nap, but there's this physical touch from an angel. There's good food and something to drink. And in fact, he doesn't just get a nap. He gets two naps and two snacks. Think about that. How good is God that in the middle of one of his servants' most weary, devastating, depressing, hard moments, when it actually should have been victorious and celebratory because of what God had accomplished through him, and and yet he's so depressed he wants his life to be taken, what God gives him is like, dude, you just need a nap. You need a nap. I'm going to send a messenger. He's going to love you. He's He's going to be an extension of my grace to you, and it's sufficient for you. I'm going to give you a nap, two of them. I'm going to give you snacks after each of those, and then you're going to be ready to do what I've called you to do. How beautiful is that? How wonderful, how nourishing and healing a nap. Some, Some of you, legit, real talk, you need to take a nap. That's God's grace to you. And and if you were looking for your husband or your wife or your children, whoever you were trying to justify that, that to, your friend, your mom, whatever, You've got a verse in the Bible now that says you can take a nap and it is God's gift to you. So you are welcome, 1 Kings 19. I, 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 I implore you, memorize it, love it. Take a nap as a result of God's grace to you in the middle of a dry and weary and difficult and yet overwhelmingly emotional, perhaps joyful season. Something we need to know and, and sense from God, I think, is that sometimes he doesn't give us a word, he doesn't give us instruction. He gives us this space, this moment to simply enjoy him and to rest in him. If you do not know a God who allows you to rest and in fact commands you to simply rest and confide in his presence, then you have not known the God of the Bible because that's who he is. That's what our father is like. Sometimes what we need is simply to go to sleep 
to enjoy some good food, to enjoy the fellowship of even physical intimacy with someone, to have a drink and to enjoy his presence. We need the blessing of these good things that God has made. Are you with me? Sometimes we just need a nap. What about you? What, what do you need? Not, not simply by way of some modern form of self-care. This is receiving care from God's Spirit who knit you together in your mother's womb. This is not about escaping what is truly uh, happening around us. This is about receiving what is truly happening within you and over you. Are you with me, church? That this is the way that we allow God to take hold of our attention for our good, for our joy, for our gladness, for our comfort. After a lengthy back and forth, Paul puts a stop to all of this. See, if you remember in Romans chapter three, all of these questions, what then? Are Jews any better off, right? And then, and then all of these different things. No, not one. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. All of this, Paul has is making clear, he, he is explaining, he's using the Old Testament, he's marshalling in Isaiah and passages from the Psalms in order that people would understand that no matter what, you are not outside of the judgment of God. And now he just puts a stop to this. Instead of explaining more and going back and forth, he stops the argument in its tracks. Again, Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 18 has given us the, the framework of which all of this comes. So if you look back just to the left a little bit, Romans 1, 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Everyone, in other words, is under the wrath of God because everyone is unrighteous. Everything Paul has written about from Romans 1.18 all the way through Romans 3.20, which we will get to next Sunday, is a treatise on 1.18, that, that everyone is under God's wrath. And in, and in chapters 2 and 3, Paul has discerned, discerned various objections to this idea, mostly religious in nature. In other words, these were the ways in which a Jew may have seen themselves and tried to wiggle out of accountability and out of judgment from God, claiming that the law or their circumcision or their ethnic heritage, that these were reasons why they would be absolved from the wrath of God. And Paul puts an end to all of it. He explains how no one is freed from the wrath of God on their own. That while then, Paul explains there's great merit in growing up in the faith. Growing up in the faith does not save you. Growing up even in a Christian home or growing up going to church does not save you. See, if you grow up around faith, it doesn't mean that you have faith. You grow up around people who are faithful, it does not mean that, that you are. It, it, it's simply about an encounter that you have in the presence of God by grace through faith. It's a work of his spirit so that no one can boast. No one understands. No one seeks God. Not Jews, not Gentiles. We are all under the, the wrath of God because we are all unrighteous. And then, almost as if he's had it, enter verse 19. It's almost like he's like, yo, if you guys aren't listening, I'm just going to tell you to please be quiet. He says, every mouth must be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. In other words, y'all y'all need to just stop. Stop talking. It seems as much as a nap may be biblical, so is shutting up at times. Being quiet, 
church is deeply biblical. The right times under God's spirit and his direction, simply being quiet can be deeply practical or deeply biblical. And my dear friends, I cannot think of a more fruitful spiritual discipline for us this Sunday after an election like we have gone through than this discipline of spiritual silence. That holy quiet, which arises out of a righteous fear of the Lord, a holy silence and reflection upon God's character of knowing who he is and what he is like. See, twice already in Romans, Paul has highlighted spiritual silence in his letter. Romans 1.17, he said they are without excuse. In other words, they, they can't speak back. They have nothing to say. And those who see God's wonderful world and do not believe in him, when they see his creation and they do not obey him, Paul says they are without excuse. They have nothing to say when they are judged, when judgment comes. And again, in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Paul explains that anyone who judges also has no excuse. Their, their guilt leaves them with no rebuttal before a holy God who brings his righteousness to bear upon sin and judgment and judgmentalism. See, they have nothing to say. They have no excuse. They all must be silent before God. See, when we behold God, when we get an accurate vision of him, we see our sin, we see our foolishness and our shame too. In other words, when we see an accurate view of God, we also get an accurate view of ourselves. His holiness reveals the evil that is inside of us. See, we may be able to say in and of ourselves that we're a pretty good person, but we are all deplorable, broken, sinful, deeply evil people when our hearts are juxtaposed next to the holiness of God. In response, we, we, don't, we don't thank him, that he hasn't made us better than other people around us. Like like in Luke 18, verse 11, we ask for mercy. in, In God's presence, we don't just go, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like her. I'm so glad I'm not like him because Jesus, you know, they're not, they're, they're, they're not tight with you like we are. Right? We, we have no rebuttal. We have nothing to say. We are in the presence of a holy and righteous and sovereign and beautiful God. We don't talk. We have nothing to say. An anxiousness, a loud voice in God's presence is one of self-defense. But when we behold God in, in righteousness and in humility, we realize that he does not require us to be better than someone else. This is, that's not righteousness. He demands a positive standard. In other words, in God's presence, he isn't curious if you're more holy than your neighbor. He wants to know, are you loving your neighbor? He wants to know if you're take care, taking care of your neighbor like he told you to. So in God's presence, then, we come to him humbly. We come to him reflecting upon his character, understanding how that reveals our own, how that reveals our character. And so in his presence, I think there are a few things about silence that we can understand from his word. First, one of the things that we understand is that spiritual spiritual silence is confession. See, Job experienced this spiritual silence, and we referenced his story again earlier. Then in Job 40, verse 2, God says, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. You see, Job was guilty. 
What God is essentially saying is, who are you to speak back to me in my presence? That ultimately, do you trust me? Ultimately, are you, are you, are you, are you humble before me? Are you contrite before me? See, the only righteous response, the only righteous first response in God's presence was silence. And, and therefore, he eventually responded to the Lord. Behold, Job says, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer, but I will proceed no further. He had nothing to say. He had no excuse. He simply put his hand over his mouth and was quiet. This was his confession. He was agreeing with God. He was agreeing with God's assessment, Job was, of his own heart. Secondly, spiritual silence is is not only confession, but spiritual silence is exaltation. It's a way of of worshiping God. The, The psalmist commanded spiritual silence. The writers of the sons of Korah spoke about God as their refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble in Psalm 46.1. As a result, then, God's people need not be afraid of anything in this world. Why? Because we are fearful. We are righteously fearful of him. We exalt him in all things. We are in his presence no matter where we go because there is not a square inch in this universe where he is not present and Lord at the exact same time time. And yet behold, before beholding this power of God, the choir master commands God's people, again in Psalm 46, that in, in God's voice it says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God commands that in his presence we are still and that we acknowledge that he alone is God. Silence, spiritual silence, is exaltation of the character and worth and beauty and glory and majesty of God the Father, Son, and Spirit. So spiritual silence is confession. Spiritual silence is exaltation. Spiritual silence is also knowing yourself. This is the sentiment echoed by the preacher in Ecclesiastes. He says, guard your steps. When you go to the house of God, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash, he says, with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. We have nothing to say. We have no excuse. We must be quiet and silent and still before God. See, when we're quiet before God, it's a manner of confessing our sin before him. When we're quiet before God, it is a way of acknowledging and and exalting him in his presence. When we're quiet before God, it is a way of even knowing ourselves and understanding that we are creatures who have been created. We are not the lords of our own domains. We are not in control. We are not creators, ultimately, that we are creatures made by God. See, all of this comes from a fear of the Lord. Fearing the Lord leads to silence. And by the way, this is a really important, actual practice, to be silent before the Lord. See, when we are in his presence, we are left speechless. In our our silence, we confess our guilt. 
It's an agreement to surrender and to, to exalt the Lord. It's the ceasing of making excuses and mounting up a prideful defense and, and truly knowing ourselves. It's giving our undivided attention to God that is, it is stolen away by so many lesser things. It's agreeing with God's assessment of our soul and in quiet, we await his righteous response. See, spiritual silence is agreeing that no matter what God's response is to our sin, to who we are, to what is in our hearts, then we will submit and concede to his will. See, we're quiet so that we don't further indict ourselves. Spiritual silence then is simply being in God's presence, confessing sin, exalting him, knowing ourselves, just being in his presence. And so all of this to say, Paul is done with the back and forth of these objections. Under the law, the world, you and I, must be silent because we have nothing to say. And appropriate fear leads to the silence. See, when we are quiet, that's actually when we can hear God. And this is a marvelous concept that I'm trying to teach my children. <laughs> I'm trying to learn as well before my Heavenly Father. That when we're quiet, we can hear. The author Ruth uh, Picker has said that without silence, God cannot be part of the worship. Worship must be two-way communication, she writes. One cannot extol God's worth without letting him get a word in edgewise. See, in silence, we stop explaining ourselves to God and start listening to God explain who we are to us. Instead of explaining ourselves to God, we listen to God explain who we are. See, he shows us the truth and beauty of his character. And notice in verse 19 that through personification, Paul brings the law to life. He, he writes that the law says and that the law speaks. See, when we're silent in God's presence, God speaks to us. So what does he say? What does he say to us when we confess our guilt and agree uh, with his bleak assessment of our spiritual condition? What, what, does, what, what does he say when we acknowledge that we are under the law, that we are under sin, as Paul has written, that no one seeks God, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one is fit to be in his presence. So what does God say when we are silent before him in a righteous fear, ready to confess, exalting him? knowing ourselves. What does he say to us who are cursed under sin, under wrath, and under the law? Well, reading ahead, we get our answer. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 through 22. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, hear this church, has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. See, God the Father has spoken to us. 
and he has spoken to us through his son. This is how the writer of Hebrews opens up his book. He says that in many different times, in many different ways, God spoke to us through the prophets, but now he has spoken through his son. If you want to know what the father says, look at his son. If you want to know what God wants to say to you, look at his son. If you want to understand what it is he would have for you, what he desires from you, what obedience looks like, where your power lies, look to the sun. Church, are you picking up what I'm throwing down? Look to the sun. Listen to Jesus. Give your attention to Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. See, no works and words will justify us. We've got nothing to say. We have no rebuttal. We must be silent. But now there is this brand of godly righteousness, which has been manifested apart from the law through grace. See, spiritual silence leads to confession, exaltation, and knowing ourselves. And it's in that space, in that silence, in that worship, in that being with God, we hear God speak. And what does he say? Here is my son. Here is my son. Here is my son. Here is my son. So what does God say to us? What does God say to us who are under the law? That he has made, therefore, a way out from under the law that by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, those who are condemned under the law, under sin, under wrath, can be brought under grace through the son of the only father in heaven. See, ultimately... What we admit in our silence is that we cannot save ourselves. Paradoxically, this is the spiritually ripe soil from which salvation is born. See, when we can't save ourselves, salvation actually becomes possible. When you admit that you cannot save yourself, you are now a candidate, if you will, for salvation. It's why we sing this in the great hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Silence is the admission, I have nothing to say, nothing to bring in his presence, We are silent in his presence. In silence, we hear God speak. And here's what he says. Nothing could you bring. Nothing could you ever bring to save you. Nothing in your hand did you ever need. Nothing in your hand could you ever put there that would make you righteous, that would bring you out from under the law, that would bring you out from under wrath, that would bring you out from under sin. John Gissner put it this way. Nothing can keep the ungodly from Christ but his delusion that he has good works of his own that can satisfy God. All they need is need. All they must have is nothing. Sister, brother, in the silence, this is what we affirm and reaffirm, that I've got nothing to bring. But then what we hear from our Heavenly Father is all you need is need. All you need is nothing. In fact, there's something about that too that seems just a bit too good to be true, doesn't it? And yet this is what God's word teaches us. In silence, we realize we have a great need. We have nothing. It's similar to what we've said about God's judgment though, that the only way to be protected from God's judgment is to first 
Understand that you deserve God's judgment. In this case, the only way to save yourself is to admit you cannot save yourself. When we are silent, we can receive. When we're silent, we can hear. When when we're silent, we can be in his presence. Friends, I realize the irony is not lost on me. I'm a preacher. I talk way too much. I talk way too much. I, I, I trust words and my explanation and parsing and all. He says, just be, be still. No, I'm God. Job puts his hand over his mouth. Paul says, let every mouth stop. When we're silent, we can receive. And specifically what we receive in that silence, in the presence of God, in intimacy and fellowship with him that has been made possible and mediated through the righteousness of Christ is the righteousness of God. It's imparted to us by grace through faith. See, the very thing that we could not claim to secure on our own through the law is the righteousness of God. It's why we are under the law. That's why we are under the consequence and wrath of the law. And so when we stop talking, when we stop seeking our own righteousness, when we stop making excuses and defending ourselves, when we stop trying to wiggle out of God's judgment, we receive forgiveness for our sins. We, we receive cleansing of a guilty conscience. We, we receive freedom from God's wrath through the propitiation of Jesus Christ. We receive a new mind. We receive a new heart. We receive God's spirit. One day we'll receive new resurrected bodies. We receive this new union with Christ. We receive intimacy with the Father. We receive fellowship with the Holy Spirit. We receive eternal union with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We receive love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Am I preaching to you yet? We receive the eternal treasure of heaven when we just stop talking. this righteous fear of the Lord has led to silence. See, silence leads to receiving this eternal care from Jesus, our great high priest. We come to him with nothing. He fills us to overflowing. But let's not miss the fullness of the scripture's teaching in this matter. See, silence is not a spiritual status of a follower of Jesus. Silence is a moment Silence is what it means to be in God's presence. Silence is ultimately our experience of receiving, but we are receiving for a particular purpose. See, silence is the birthplace of repentance. Silence is perhaps our daily habit, as if, but, but it's not our daily habit in which we stay put in, as if speaking were evil. Speaking back to God is always evil, but many times in our daily lives as believers, as followers of Christ, Silence is sinful. You see, we receive all of this from the Lord in his presence in silence so that we can live righteously. Godly silence then always leads to godly action or righteousness and righteous living. See, that's the point of Elijah's process as well. You see, after waking up from his second nap and receiving his second snack and this healing touch from the angel, he was led back to mission and purpose. Elijah was also ready to hear from God, not just take a nap, not just eat. 
And so there's this wonderful moment where Elijah is brought into the presence of God. He's, he's not only taking this nap from the broom tree, but he moves on into his mission and God speaks to him. But there's this succession of ways in which God speaks that are brought before Elijah. And God doesn't speak in the wind. God didn't come in the earthquake. God didn't come in the fire. But rather, in 1 Kings 19, 12, God spoke to Elijah in a low whisper or a thin silence. See, the demise of the northern kingdom was soon coming, but it was God's desire to care for and bring correction and to empower his servant Elijah through the silence. Not just in a powerful display of fire from heaven, but in the silence of sleep and in the thin silence of his voice. See, in salvation, in the moment and experience of salvation, Paul says, we have nothing to say. No one is righteous, no, not one. Every mouth is stopped that the world would know, that we would know, that we will be held accountable to God, that we are under the law. In silence, we are silent, but perhaps just like Elijah, but, but ultimately, we are so because we cannot save ourselves, just like Elijah. He realized that. And the way we are saved is now the way that we are kept. In, in, in other words, that the, the, the way of our initial encounter with God and intimacy and fellowship with God is through silence. Therefore, my sister and brother, if you are feeling distant from God or you don't hear his voice, become silent before him. The way you are saved is the way that you are kept. Not by explaining ourselves to God, but listening to him explain who we are to us. Today, you may need to be silent. You may simply need to receive the intimacy of the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and a renewed and refreshed soul. You may simply need to receive from him, and that's okay. That's good to experience that silent refreshing from the Lord. Today, you may need to be silent. Perhaps you need that for the next few days, to be silent before him with his word. Perhaps you need to do that to keep from sinning so that you're not going to say something that you will, in anger, overstep and in impatience, say well beyond what you righteously should. Perhaps you need to be silent to keep from justifying your sin before God. But soon, soon, church, by God's grace, we must be a people of the word. We must be a people of the word because when we are silent before God, that we are no longer saying that we can save ourselves, we are filled with something new to say. We, we are given a new song to sing, one of libera liberation, of freedom, of hope, and of real power in the midst of the, the, the false and broken and earthly powers of this world. See, we need to be a people who speak. We need to be a people who act in a manner of the gospel and in the power of the gospel. So what does that mean for us? See, silence is meant to be, lead to shouts of praises. Silence is meant to lead us to cries of repentance and lament. Silence is meant to lead us to acts of obedience. Silence is meant to, to lead us to works of reconciliation. Eddie Glaude, who is the chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University, was interviewed this week. 
about particularly racial injustice over the past number of years in our country and how often our president is blamed for those divisive tenors and currents in our country. And he was very clear to, I think, rightly suggest that ultimately no president and no person can make a people ultimately racist and broken and systematically corrupt in the ways that perhaps some of us have blamed our president. What he, I think, or aptly pointed out is that this has been a sin of our country for a very long time long before this president and regretfully, perhaps many years and decades to come. See, ultimately what we have to do as a people, not just as Americans, but as the people of God, is we have to be willing to put to rest a story of our national innocence so that we might actually hear from God. We need to be quiet with our stories of who we are, of who we've told ourselves to be, of who our history books have even told ourselves told us that we are, and hear from God that we have nothing to say. We have nothing to speak back to the sins that are in our past and the sins that are in our heart today and the sins, regretfully, that will be in our future. Not simply around racial injustice and racism, but certainly those are an illustration of a much larger evil that many of us want to place the problems on the powers of our day and not our willful submission to the powers of of this world. See, the corruption in my heart, the brokenness in my heart clings to the sins and the glamour and the personality and the prestige and the powers of this day. This is why, this is so important. This is why one minute Elijah can be bringing fire from heaven and the next he can be cowering in fear. Church, you see, today you may be relieved, you may be grieved, but the greatest question to ask is where are you grounded? Where is your heart? In what powers do you trust? What powers do you fear? See, I, I believe that ultimately we know that our, our righteous fear is placed in God when we are willing to regularly be quiet before him that we might hear from him, that he might correct us, that he might comfort us, that he might empower us, that he might guide us, that he might heal us, that he might tell us who we are and what it is he desires for us to do. You see, this is what it means for us to be the people of God long before the United States and long after. This is what it means for us to face our grief and to face our relief all together as God's people, is that we together agree we will be silent before God. As brothers and sisters, we will be silent before God that we might hear from him and then say and do as he instructs. Because see, Paul maintains that we will be accountable before God. Even under grace, the works and words of our life will be assessed by a holy and righteous God in the age to come. In other words, one day we will be quiet before God in the flesh. We will be quiet before God in his presence. We will have nothing to say. We're not going to be able to point back to where we voted and how we voted. We're not going to be able to just point back to how we 
behave that one time in that one place. We're not just going to be able to point back to say, look at my country. We're not going to be able to point back to anything definable. The Jews couldn't point to the fact that they had the, the Torah. The Jews couldn't point back to the fact that they had circumcision. They couldn't point to anything else. And so today, what you and I need to regularly do is get silent before God and hear his voice. And what's he going to say? Look at my son. Look at my son. Look at my son. Look at my son. Because on that day, when we once again will be quiet before God, if the regular disposition of our heart has been in silence before him, hearing from his son, then on that day, when he looks at us, when we behold him in silence, he will welcome us into an eternal fellowship, not based upon the merits of our good conduct, our good conduct or the more perfect union that we help to establish by our will. But ultimately, he will welcome us into his eternal kingdom because of his son, because of the righteousness extended to us by Jesus Christ. So may we be a people quiet before God, waiting upon him to speak, hear what he has to say. This week, would we be a people who wait to hear what God has to say long before we tell all of our friends, neighbors, and social media associations what we have to say? May we wait on him for forgiveness. May we wait on him as he hears our cries of confession. May we wait on him to hear his word but then, as we hear from him, may we be open, may we speak, may we work to bring about the good and the works of reconciliation, the works of, of, of healing, the works of growing, the, wor the works of ultimately not cowering before the powers of this world, but by asking God in Christ, how is it? that we may see this world transformed by the renewal of our minds and the kingdom of God advancing. Because see, church, though we are a people, a church in the square, who have progressives and conservatives among us, the church of Jesus Christ is not a little bit conservative and a little bit progressive. We are a third completely different thing. We are the people of God. And one of the defining distinctions of the people of God this week and every week to come is that we are silent before God. We are silent before him because we fear him and his power and his glory and his worth, his beauty and his truth more than any powers of this world. So God, may it be so for our good and your glory we ask in Jesus' name, amen.